As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The presenting sponsor of The Audible is Trader Joe's. Inside Trader Joe's is a five-part podcast series that takes you literally inside Trader Joe's. Go inside the TJ's tasting panel, travel to wineries in Napa Valley, and around the world to discover the next great Trader Joe's products. Discover why they wear those super fashionable Hawaiian shirts. You'll find Inside Trader Joe's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by Stuart Mandel. We're taping on a Monday morning after a bunch of big games. And Stu, my game, Washington-BYU, which was a top 25 matchup, which turned out to be a blowout in Seattle. But I did not get to see any of the Ohio State-Penn State game, which was a thriller. Now, I've seen the highlights. (laughs) What was it like to watch it for, for three and a half hours? I mean, is it as good as the hype? Yeah, it was a great game. And, you know, it's always cool when these big primetime games live up to the hype. In fact, you know, if you remember going into the weekend, it was, oh, you got that and Stanford Notre Dame opposite. Well, Notre Dame pulled away from Stanford so quickly that everybody shifted their attention to the game in State College. And you went into it, uh, everybody talking about the two offenses and they're scoring over 50 points a game, Dwayne Haskins and all that. But at the end of the day, it wasn't that high scoring of a game, and yet we still saw some amazing performances. You've got, obviously, you know, first and foremost, Trace McSorley ran for 175 yards. They just, and that's not something he had done before. They just, Ohio State just could not stop him as a runner. We saw KJ Hamler, the freshman, redshirt freshman for Penn State, break a 93-yard run in which I don't, I'm not sure I've ever seen a football player accelerate that fast. It was like watching Usain Bolt grab a football and go 93 yards. We saw, obviously, all that speed on Ohio State, but I think what everybody's going to talk, remember from that game, what everybody's going to talk about, you know, Penn State up uh, 12 points with eight minutes left, manages to lose the game, but not before they didn't have a chance at the end, and it comes down to fourth and five. They take two timeouts to set up the play. Then Trace McSorley, not once but twice, looks to the sideline and changes the play. I remember thinking the play clock was going to run out. You know, they'd already taken two timeouts. Now they're going to have to take the third timeout, which means there's no chance they're going to have any way to stop Ohio State if they don't get this. Doesn't take the timeout, does run the play, and it was, it was the most anticlimactic ending to an epic three-and-a-half-hour game. Fourth and five, his own handoff to Miles Sanders, stuffed, game over. And it was so bizarre that that would have been the play call. First of all, it's fourth and five. You think they're going to pass. But even if they're going to run, you would think McSorley would have had the ball in his hands. They didn't. They couldn't run. The, the running backs had no success all night. He hands off, and everybody on Twitter is just simultaneously like, that was your play call? How can that possibly be? I thought for sure there had been some sort of miscommunication, and McSorley thought it was something different than what they were calling. But no, James Franklin said after the game, clearly we should have called something different, but that was the play. So... I bring all this up to say that there was a, a month or so ago, was it CBS that ran the anonymous poll 
Uh, yes. yeah, yeah, about overrated underrated coaches, and James Franklin was considered the most overrated. And you know, you wrote a column about it. You, we talked about it on here. Very passionate about us believing that 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 was unfair, uh, given what he's accomplished at Vanderbilt and at Penn State. And what I really noticed Saturday night, and I know Twitter's not the best gauge, but just vitriolic backlash at this guy, who from this one call, it was a terrible play call. Don't get me wrong. But the criticism just seemed very, very harsh. And then to compound that, there was video footage. Actually, Audrey Snyder from our site was the one who got it, of him as he's walking off the field. He gets into it with a fan in the uh, Penn State, I don't know if it was the student set, in the crowd, a Penn State fan as he's leaving the field. They exchange words, and then he actually, as he was getting to the tunnel, kind of like started to charge that way, and they had to hold him back. He apologized for that later, but... There's a lot of people that don't like James Franklin is what I came away from this with. Yeah, look, I think that 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 was there before. And I think there's a lot of people who are just waiting to say, aha, see, I told you. Rare for a guy to lose a game and maybe up his Heisman stock. It sounds like Trace McShorley probably did that, right? Uh, I think for people who were questioning how good of a player he was, or maybe they knew he was good, maybe they didn't realize just how good. I think that was a pretty good example, it sounds like, on Saturday night. I don't know. I, you know, the column you're, you're referencing, I'm sorry, like Penn State came within a point of a really talented team. Did they make a bad play call? Obviously, hindsight is 2020. I mean, if it if it if it hits, then they're going to say, well, everyone's expecting And this sounds a little bit like the great Texas USC game where USC doesn't go to Reggie Bush. They go to Lendell White. Reggie Bush isn't out there, isn't a factor on the play. And it blows up in Pete Carroll's face. Again, similar deal. The Super Bowl, Pete Carroll, where Malcolm Butler picks off picks off Russell Wilson at the goal line. He's like, "Wait, you got this great player. Why don't you feed him?" And in the in the crucial moment, and it didn't work out. This was a particularly. I mean, you're right, and I saw definitely the comparisons to uh, Reggie Bush not being on the field. But this wasn't fourth and one. This was fourth and five. It just, I, it was just strange. There's no other way to put it. Like what. Why on earth would you think an inside handoff would, would against Chase Young and all the and Draymond Jones and all those guys was going to get you five yards? So it was odd, and it was and it was off of two timeouts, right? They had a lot of time to get this right. There was a stat that came out Saturday night that's pretty crazy. And by the way, you remember if you saw the press conference afterwards, a very a very heated James Franklin said that his main point was that we we were a great program, but we're not an elite program yet, like Ohio State. And that's on me, and I'm going to get that fixed, and we're going to become an elite program. Well, Penn State, if you go back to the Rose Bowl in twenty in the 2016 season, their last four losses, which would be that one, the Ohio State game last year, which, by the way, for these two teams to play three absolute thrillers in a row now, and last year was 39-38, another big Ohio State fourth quarter comeback this year is 27-26. So the Rose Bowl, they lost by on a field goal by three points. They lose to Ohio State last year by one point. That's four points. They lose to Michigan State by a field goal. That's seven points. And then uh, this one was another one-point game. So four losses by a combined eight points in which they led in the fourth quarter in all four games. So that's one of those things where you can look at it one of two ways. Like, oh, they're so close. Generally speaking, you're, you're supposed to split those kind of games, not lose all four. Or, in the case of the James Franklin skeptics or critics, well, that's a reflection of his bad bad play calling and bad coaching in the second half. But the only thing with that, Stu, is think about this. So you're giving me that. Well, they beat Iowa by like two points on the road in a tough place to play last year, right? Mm-hmm. They won that close game. They beat Washington. I think it was a touchdown game. I mean, I know it was. because we It wasn't quite as it. close as the final margin, but yeah. No, but yeah, they beat Wisconsin to win the Big Ten title game. That was a touchdown game. They beat Ohio State two years ago in that game. That was a field goal game, right? So, I, th- I mean, I think we're being sub- – you know, I, what is his record in games decided by a touchdown or less? I don't know off the top of my head. But I can, you know, I can rattle off a bunch of close games that they did win. This one was on him. I don't think that's an indictment of his whole coaching tenure, his coaching ability. The interaction with the fan was not good. I mean, no, there's, there's no, no other to me there, Yeah, to me that – to me, that's inexcusable. I get it that it is an emotional scene. You know, we've seen coaches lose it, and when there's really no no good enough excuse for that, that's bad. The play call, the play call was a bad play call. But again, that happens. 
that happens. You're going to get get stuff wrong. I mean, I would be curious as to how many times there are big moments like that and the coach thinks about it and goes, yeah, I think this will work, but it's taking the ball out of your best player's hands. And at the end of the day, is that something – you know, how often does that blow up in your face? Yeah, I mean, that, that would... if you're going to be wrong, be wrong with Trace McSorley getting stuffed or get or throwing an incompletion or, or whatever it is or getting sacked. I, I mean, to me, that's, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but you'd think that's the way if you're going to lose, let Trace McSorley, you know, have the ball in his hands. And if Trace McSorley had tucked it and run, I don't know if he would have gotten the five yards, but at least you would have said, well, that was working for us all night. So, of course, on the last play of the game, we're going to go for that. If you watch the replay... Chase Young, who, by the way, had a phenomenal game. I mean, he not only did he make that play at the end, but he had a there was a fourth and one, I think, late third, early fourth quarter for Penn State where he deflected the pass. If he hadn't, could have been a touchdown. He had two sacks. And notable, of course, because Nick Bosa wasn't there. So if you watch the play, Chase Young knows exactly what's coming. He, 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 he runs straight to the, the, the ball. To your point earlier, it's an interesting thing. Did Trace McSorley gain some Heisman credibility with that performance? Absolutely. But as you know, it's hard to to really make much headway after a loss. Dwayne Haskins led two touchdown drives in the last eight minutes, including a 96-yard drive, and didn't probably get as much acclaim out of that game as Trace McSorley did. He's still obviously considered one of the Heisman frontrunners. But if you look at our, for instance, Heisman straw poll, uh, that went up on the athletic. He fell behind uh, Will Greer and Kyler Murray. So, of course, all those guys are playing phenomenal. Uh, I, I think that the, the reason people felt that way was, on the whole, it did feel like Penn State was the better team in that game. But I mean, you can't say enough good things about the way Ohio State came back at the end. The speed, all the, I mean, the catch by Ben Victor that kept the thing alive, and and it was an incredible catch. And it's like he's one of six right he's not like their star receiver or even close to being their star receiver he's like one of six guys that could have possibly been the guy in that role ohio state has now gone away from home and beaten tcu went into the most hostile atmosphere possible and beaten and beaten penn state you know i mean i think it's clear at this point that they have to be considered one on the very short list of of uh playoff and even national championship contenders yeah, I'm excited. Uh, we have our crew has them this week against a four and one Indiana team. Will be interesting to see how they come off of that, you know, emotional, crazy game that they had on the road. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think they're a much more talented team. Indiana is four and one, but they had their hands full against a awful Rutgers team last week. So, so we'll see. We know Andy Indiana gave them a really good game last year on a Thursday night to open the season. Uh, I'm curious to see Dwayne Haskins in person and see this offense everything he brings such a different dimension to what they had with JT Barrett because of his arm strength and the ability to work downfield. And as you said, these receivers have really, it's an impressive group. They got a lot of experience. They block well, they're athletic. Ben Victor for years since he's shown up has been the guy people have raved about talent wise, but he was like 170 pounds and now he's up to probably close to 200. And I'm sure this is a big one for his confidence this I think Ohio State now, if I'm not mistaken, because I saw Darius Anderson run away from them at TCU. That was a 90-plus yard play. K.J. Hamler, as you were talking about before, I mean, they have faced some some fast players, and they've given up a lot of big plays, but they made the big play, as you said, when it mattered most. Now, they're probably going to get Bosa back in November, maybe not earlier than that, maybe not at all. But what's your been your, your impression of them? You've seen... I don't want to. I, we can talk about Clemson now, maybe. I know we want a little off schedule, but I saw you drop Clemson down in your in your top ten. I'm, I I don't think you're wrong because they they struggled. They struggled with Texas A and M, and they really struggled. I get it that Trevor Lawrence was hurt, but they they had their hands full at home against Syracuse. They ran the ball well, but that was it. Who do you have the besides Alabama? Who do you have the most confidence in now? Before I answer that, I just wanted to look something up that you meant. You mentioned how they gave up the run, to, long run to Darius Anderson, the long play here to KJ Hamler. Do you know that Ohio State is the only team in the country out of 130 teams that has given up three gains of 80 or more yards? They are also the only team that has given up four gains of 70 or more yards 
and yet, you know, yet I, I guess actually, what I'm trying that, to say actually, is that's not that's not true. Both teams who've given up 70 plus plays are in the state of Ohio. Ohio U has also done that. Ohio U has also done that. You are correct. So to your question, like I think what we can agree on at this point is Ohio State's offense is probably as potent as it's ever been under Urban Meyer. But this defense is is more mortal than in recent years. Now they still have great players. Penn State came into that game averaging over fifty points, and they scored twenty six. So it's not like this was, you know, sound sound the alarm, panic kind of game. But they definitely are, are vulnerable to these big plays. Who gives me the most confidence outside of Alabama at this point? Uh, well, I, it's the same team I've had the most confidence in since probably the first or second week of the season, and that's Georgia. To me, Georgia is every bit as good as their team that went to the national championship game last year and probably a little bit more dangerous. Now, they don't have the two running backs. They still have good running backs, but they don't have those two experienced guys. No no Roquan. I think the offensive line is probably better. You would think they're better at the quarterback spot with more experience with with Jake Fromm. I think they're better in the secondary. It's kind of like how when you watch Alabama and there's so many different guys that can beat you on offense – I mean, that, instead of it just being totally focused around Chubb and Michelle, every Georgia game now, there's like eight different guys that, that carry the ball or catch the ball who are capable of taking it the distance. Now, Georgia hasn't been perfect by any means recently. They actually, you know, you look at the final score of the Tennessee game, and Tennessee's bad, and you go, know, okay, they took care of business. But, you know, it was, that it was, was a, a close tight game, game yeah. especially the way they you, – did you see the way they scored their first touchdown? I did. It was like I happened to be watching that game. I was like, whoa, the, like my first thought always with Tennessee is like, man, haven't these fans suffered enough? Like <laughs> this is now how they're giving up touchdowns. It was still a fairly close game going into the fourth quarter, but you, you just there were, you knew there was no chance Tennessee was going to somehow pull it out. It was and then Georgia pulled away. So but anyway, the reason I say them more than maybe some other teams is they're going to play a really tough game at LSU in a couple of weeks. No question about that. But I do think they're better than them, and I think they're better than everybody they would play up until the SEC championship game. I think Ohio State's got more tough games at the end of the season. And I think I think what you're trying to get at is Clemson, right? Mm-hmm. Here's the thing about Clemson. So I watched that whole game the other day, and I covered their game at AM. And so, you know, they're two, I guess the two best teams they've played so far have been escapes. You know, the AM game came down to a two-point conversion at the end. This game, you know, they were down big, relatively big, against Syracuse at home. They lose the Trevor Lawrence. I mean, it's just a crazy situation that they went from having maybe the deepest quarterback uh, room in the country in the spring to if Chase Bryce had gotten hurt in that game, Hunter Renfro was going to have to suit up at quarterback. It's just crazy that it got to that. So they had to survive Syracuse and... And so on that, so so they leave you feeling a little bit shaky. But I will say, the the great mystery of Clemson football the past two years has been why Travis Atn doesn't get more carries. He's so explosive. I guess they didn't trust him as a blocker. And so I think once Trevor Lawrence went out, they just said, "All right, you know, we're just gonna let him ride and see what happens." And he had a fen- phenomenal game. He ran for over two hundred yards. So. Trevor Lawrence is supposed to be back this week. We know he can throw it. We know they've got great receivers. If they can now be a powerful running team too, then you look at their remaining schedule, they should beat everybody they play. Yeah, I mean, look, I I don't know. I, I watched that game and I'm like, man, I think the ACC is, like we said this last week, I just so underwhelmed by, by that conference at this point. But I don't know. I I I... I I guess uh, I looked at them. I thought they would have been playing better, and I get it. You know, it, it, it all that matters right now, though, is that you keep winning and just keep getting better as a team. And they're young in some key places, and maybe that's it. I'm with you, Travis Etienne, the sophomore has been has was he put them on his back last weekend, and that was the difference. If Coming today, on- right? If on this day, Clemson was in a playoff game playing Alabama or Ohio State or Georgia. I would not be taking Clemson, but that's a long ways away from possibly happening. And I think they're still good enough to beat. I mean, I guess the the better question about Clemson is if they were to lose a game, but still win the ACC, would they get left out of the playoff? Because they could possibly go the whole season with beating maybe 
maybe one ranked team. NC State cracked the poll this week. BC briefly cracked it. You know, you would think if you get to the ACC championship game and you're playing Miami uh, or Virginia Tech, who is somehow still ranked right now, that would be a top 25 win. But in the most part, this is going to be a very, very underwhelming schedule. In fact, they, I think what they really need is Texas A&M to finish at least 8-4 and four and be in the top 25 at the end of the year because that would be considered a good win. You mean if they're – like if they win, the, they run the table and they go 13-0. That's I'd, not a question. Yeah. They would be in. The question is, you know, I think we agree that the SEC champion can afford a loss. You know, Ohio State loses a game here somewhere but wins the Big Ten. They're in the playoff. But I don't think that's necessarily a given for Clemson. Uh, I don't think it's a given for Washington either because you talk about a bad conference. The Pac-12 has been, uh, now that Stanford got killed by Notre Dame, has, has had a pretty rough non-conference season. Uh, there's just not much margin for error. But we have a new team to talk about in the playoff race. Yeah, the Notre Dame Fighting it's Irish. An upstart. They, they rarely get much attention. Yeah. But let's, let's, spotlight, let's spotlight this, this upstart program. I thought Notre Dame had a chance to win double digits this season. The question was going to be, would they be good enough at quarterback? And they look like they're good enough at quarterback with the end book now, don't they? They sure do. I mean, he's elevated the whole offense. They, you know, it, it quietly, people didn't even notice necessarily going in. Jafar Armstrong, who'd been their top running back going into that game, missed the game. Dexter Williams, who was suspended the first four games, comes back, and they don't miss a beat. He was great. They, they He threw, I think... Uh, Ian Book completed passes to 10 different receivers. You know, they look they look dangerous on offense, much more so than last year when there was a point in the season, I was at the USC game, where they just they just crushed USC, but it was still very much about the running game. And and once Josh Adams kind of came back to earth and Brandon Wimbush still couldn't throw downfield, they you know blew up in their face. This team, much more balanced. And then defensively, um, look, Stanford clearly has I mean, one of the, one of the mis- there's there's two great mysteries to this season of college football returning star players. A, what the heck happened to Khalil Tate? I know he's hurt, but this is this is bizarre. And B, what the heck happened to Bryce Love? And in that case, I don't think it's Bryce Love. I think their offensive line just cannot run block. So Stan- so Notre Dame shut them down, and they did a mer- nice job against KJ Costello. Jerry Tillery had four sacks. Uh, this is a really good team now. Other than that one, what was it, four and eight a couple years ago, just disaster season. Every other year since the playoffs started in 2014, Notre Dame has gone into November still in playoff contention, and then they would lose games. So the question is, is this team better positioned to get into November and finish the deal? And it's a pretty favorable schedule. I know this Virginia Tech game this week at uh, Blacksburg will be considered a big game, but they're better than them. Like, they should beat Virginia Tech. Yeah, I think what what starts with them is they're really, really athletic, especially by Notre Dame standards in past years on defense. And I think now, look, they had a big injury to their offensive line. Alex Bars, he was a leader of that group. He's out with a knee injury for the what looks like the rest of the season, right? Yeah, I was actually on Brian Kelly's uh, teleconference Sunday when he disclosed that it's an ACL MCL. Yeah, and he referred to it as just a devastating loss because of what you just said, not just. Hey, this is your starting guard. This is your three-year starter, two-time captain. Previously missed a full season to injury. It's a, it's bad. I mean, they they feel good about the guys who will replace them, but you know, it was definitely a downer coming out of that big win. Yeah. So I, when I look at at them, you look at their at their schedule. Notre Dame's schedule is always the hardest to figure out because they play no FCS opponents and they play a bunch of you know a handful of name brand teams. They're going to play Michigan. They're going to play Stanford. They're obviously going to play USC. But then you don't know how good some of these other teams vary from, you know, going into the year. Oh, they got Florida State. Well, Florida State, you know, they may get to six and six, but they're not very good this year. You know, you look at Navy is it will win a bunch of games, but, you know, only till recently were they really going to put a scare, I think, in, in Notre Dame. They play at Northwestern. Well, Northwestern, you know, has really struggled. Syracuse. That's now, putting it nicely. Yeah. Syracuse actually might be one of the toughest opponents they have on their schedule. And people may laugh at that. But when you look at it, I think that's the reality. They got to go to USC at the end of the year. I don't know. When I look at the schedule, so right now Virginia Tech is number 24. I think USC may creep back into the top 25 at some point. But that's the only team. I mean, they're not going to play anybody who I think will be close to the top 15. And it may place 
get a fringe fringe top 25 team. But uh, so if you have Notre Dame, let's just throw this out and, you know, maybe it'll be shot out of the sky this weekend. But if Notre Dame is 12 and 0, you know, they did beat Michigan early, looked good doing it. They blew out Stanford. But the rest of it, it's not going to be a lot of top 10, top 15 on their resume. Do you think there's any chance Notre Dame could get left out at 12 and 0, even if there's some one loss Power Five teams? No. Is that even a question? It is a question. Yeah. I don't think any Power Five team is going to get left out at 12 and 0. They've already got two wins over top 25 teams. Well, they're the only ones, though, that can't be 13 and 0. I, I, right? don't, I just, I don't even, it never even crosses my mind. I think that. So it's a lock. You're Stuart, undefeated. Stuart yeah. The better Stuart question. Mandel, the, the, uh, what do you, what's that thing you do every weekend? The bowl, bowl projections. Sorry, bowl projections. So you're saying, though, write it down right now. If Notre Dame goes 12-0, and 0, no doubt in your mind, no matter what else happens, they're going to the playoff. It's not even a question. I'm really okay. surprised you're okay. raising this. Okay. okay. The much better okay. question is if they were 11-1 and 1, because they don't play the championship game. Would they have a good enough resume to possibly beat out somebody that's a 12-1 and 1 champion from another conference? But... That we almost had to face that. Um, I don't think I, with this with the schedule the way they have right now. I don't think eleven and one, because unfortunately for them, or fortunately, I guess depending on how you look at it, but they, I do not think their schedule is going to carry. They need Michigan to just go on a roll and get at least to the Big Ten title game, because right now, to me, Michigan's the only team that really has the chance, a real chance. I'm not saying you know Virginia Tech could could you know shock everybody, but I think Michigan really is the only team that's on their schedule right now that realistically has a chance to to get near the top 10. I think now that the Big 12 has a championship game, it's going to be very hard for Notre Dame to get in at 11 and 1 in any given year. If you remember in 2015, Notre Dame goes into the Stanford game at the end of the year 10 and 1, they lose on a last second field goal. If that field goal misses and they're 11 and 1, it would have come down to them and 11-1 and Big 12 champion Oklahoma. And I think it would have gone to Oklahoma. But at least in that case, it was 11-1 and versus 11-1. and If it's 11-1 and versus 12-1, and that's going to be a big problem because the 12th one, obviously, is going to be a, against a highly ranked team. So if they go 11-1, and they need to hope it's a situation like last year, which was 11-1 and Alabama against you know, 11 and two Ohio state. You need, you, you need there to be a two loss team in the equation, but I will make this prediction right now. Write it down. October 1st, Notre Dame will go into the USC game on Thanksgiving weekend, playing to clinch a spot in the college football playoff. And you're predicting a shocking upset that will make Jacob Ullman and Matt Leiner very happy. (laughs) I'm not making any, I'm not picking, I'm not predicting the outcome of the game. I'm predicting that they will go into the game that that will be a game that they if they win they go to the playoff if they lose they don't. And in terms of USC, I don't want to we've talked about them a lot. I don't really want to get too much into it, but what what a messy team. <laughs> they had 18 penalties the other night and still beat Arizona. It's a thing where like, you know, we were talking two weeks about is Clay Helton going to lose his job. And the thing is, I still don't think they're very good, but that division is such a mess. That I kind of am inclined to think at this point that they're going to end up winning the division. At which point, can you really fire the guy? I don't know. I, I, I don't know where they're going to be at. I mean, they are, they are scuffling to get by at this point. I mean, Colorado is the only undefeated team left. And Colorado, John Wilner pointed this out, and I winced. Colorado is 4-0, and the teams that they've beaten have combined for one win on the whole season. Winless Nebraska. Winless UCLA. Winless UCLA. Believe it or not, winless New Hampshire. The only team they've beaten that has won a game is Colorado State. So just, I love uh, I love Colorado's offense, but we just don't know anything about them yet. Arizona is an absolute mess. Utah has been disappointing. UCLA might not win a game. So I mean, USC may end up winning that division by default, by process of elimination. The worst Power 5 division, certainly of the playoff era. Of the whole, when do you whole, remember? You think the Pac-12 South is the worst division of in the last five years? Yeah, I, I cannot remember worse. I mean, at least when you know you've had some some clunkers from the Big Ten West, but not I, to this I gotta degree. think there was an ACC Coastal in there somewhere that would be in contention. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we'll we'll see what 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 uh, Colorado turns out to be. I guess I I, am, I will uh, say Arizona State has the best 
win of the season in the Pac-12 right now. Oh, Michigan State? Yeah. 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 And they played Washington tough, so. Turning the page to... Let's not turn the page to this week just yet, because I got one more thing for you from this past week. Are we talking West Virginia? By the way, my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter's favorite song that's an actual, you know, that's not from Disney... (laughs) Her favorite song right now, Country Roads. I think it's a sign. Okay, I don't know what to make of that. I think it means this is the year of the Mountaineers. I watched a lot of that game. Me too. Will Greer, when he's clicking, is terrifying. He had Texas Tech on its heels because every time he threw the ball, he just makes it look so effortless. Now, they obviously did not have a good second half and let Texas Tech back in it. But I think when you go on the road in conference against a, a you know even a respectable opponent, however you win the game, you win the game. I'm not going to dock somebody's style points. I think West Virginia is at least at least on the same plane as Oklahoma in terms of who's going to win the Big Twelve. Well, as you know, Stu, one of us picked them to win the Big Twelve this summer, and I'm sticking by it. My big thing with them is, and you could say this to some degree with a lot of teams, as long as they stay reasonably healthy, that is most true with West Virginia because I feel like their stars are dramatically better than the guys who are behind them. But if Will Greer and those two offensive tackles can stay healthy and, and they don't lose some of the playmakers they have on defense, I think they're really, really dangerous. And um, they, as, as people know, they get... Oklahoma in Morgantown late in the year so watch out for those guys I think they're I think they're for real and I think Will Greer is going to stay around the Heisman race because he's going to keep putting up big numbers they do have some tests but um yeah well we talked about how bad the Pac-12 and the ACC look the Big 12 I think is proving to be um, stronger at the top than it has been in the last couple of years. And so whether it's Oklahoma, whether it's West Virginia, uh, I don't think there's any guarantee that that team would make it through the whole thing uh, with only one loss because Texas is now becoming a team that can beat you. TCU has not been great since that Ohio State game, but I think will still continue to be a factor. Oklahoma State's been up and down. I mean, there's just, you know, in that conference – there's not many games, Kansas being one of them, where, you know, I think Kansas and Baylor are really the only two teams that if you're one of those top contenders, you're probably going to win that game for sure. Everybody else, uh, that's not true. Kansas State is in rough, rough shape. They are, uh, but they also, <laughs> they gave Texas a battle in the second they half. They came back in the second half. I mean, look, if Texas is going to keep winning, they're going to have to keep winning ugly. I think it's it's clear that... You know, their offense is better than it was last season, a little bit better than it was last season. Sam Ellinger has made some nice progress, has had some nice games, but they're still a team. I mean, they won 19-14. to 14. You know, they're still a team that's going to have to win primarily with its defense, which brings us to Red River Week. This is the game of the week, really, right now. And I don't think anybody would have, would have predicted that after week one when they lost to Maryland. It's good for college football when this game has the national stage because it hasn't been that way for a while can we just talk for a second about what it's like to go to a red river game because it truly is the most unique you know environment for a big college football game in the country yeah right in the middle i mean look you and i went to so many ones in the 2000s yes when these two teams were dominant programs and it's it's an awesome experience i mean there's just a lot there's so much tradition there there's great food there. There's uh, it just it the experience around the fair is so unique. Uh, there is, like you said, there is nothing quite like it. And the fact that this year's game is such a big deal, you know, if you're not a fan of one of these two teams, but are just a huge college football fan, find a way to go. I mean, this would be the year to go right now. I remember going. This is many, many years ago. Chris Sims might have been the Texas quarterback, where me and you and and maybe Mark Connolly were. You know, it starts really early, but by the time you leave, it might be dark. And we were trying to find our car, and we, I don't know, made a wrong turn or something and ended up um, near a bunch of horses. I vaguely remember that. manure was was strong in the air. The days before GPS existed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's nothing like it. And 
it's the first time since 2012 that both teams are ranked in the top 20. It's the first time since 2012 that both teams are ranked in the top 20. It's the first time since 2011 that Oklahoma is ranked as high as it is. And which is, which is crazy when you think back to the, the, the Mac Brown, Bob Stoops peak. I want to read this off to you real quick. Starting in 2000, it was number 10 versus number 11, number 3 versus number 5, number 2 versus number 3, number 1 versus number 11, and number 2 versus number 5. That was five straight years. Oklahoma won all of those games, by the way. That was when Texas fans were so fed up with Mac Brown that he would win almost every game except that one. So, I, look, it's not, this is not that, right? This is not Sam, Sam Bradford versus Colt McCoy. But it is a game where there's a lot at stake for Oklahoma, and it does feel like they, this is not a gimme. No, because I think they are so so talented on defense, and Todd Orlando, I think, is really good at mixing stuff up. This is going to be a big test for Kyler Murray. I really think he will be he will be challenged in a way he hasn't been yet this year. I know that Army gave him some issues in the little bit of time he had the ball, but Texas' secondary is much more athletic and much more talented than what certainly saw two weeks ago with Army. So this should really be fun. I, I, I'm excited to see this. Me too, and you're right. I mean, Kyler Murray's been sensational. The game he had the other day was, and this is a pretty incredible stat, the highest passer, he put up a 330 passer rating. It was the highest passer rating that a quarterback has had in the FBS, and I'm not sure what the minimum attempts is, but not five, since at least 1996. Wow. Yeah. That is something. That is something, especially given who the quarterback was there before him. Yeah, look, a, a lot of credit to Lincoln Riley. He knows exactly what he's doing. I know there were some people who were a little skeptical of him when he took over. He has certainly proven he knows what he's doing. Uh, hey, before we move on a little bit, one other thing, and you and I talked about this when it kind of popped up on social media. It was a clip about Jimbo Fisher and grabbing the face mask of one of his players. What did you think when you saw it? I might be a little too middle ground here. Like, it's not good. I don't think you could be doing that in 2018. I don't think you can be grabbing your player by the helmet as forcefully as he did. But I'm also not like ready to fire the guy over it. Yeah, I got to admit, when I saw that, this would be maybe the only time in the history of this podcast where I will reference well, when I played. But I remember when I, I don't know if it was probably in, this was in a his training camp kind of time of the year. I remember having somebody grab, the coach grab my face mask and kind of yank on it. And I didn't, you know what? It's like, it's embarrassing. It doesn't hurt. It just kind of is a, uh, I don't know, get your attention. And personally, I, I thought, I hope this doesn't blow in to be a bigger deal, but it did. Now, like, like, I, like you said, I don't think this is a great look for Jimbo Fisher. I think it's something people will look and go, well, are you, are you treating your players with respect? I've seen a lot of players who played at really high levels of football who were very critical of this, both yesterday and, uh, and earlier today. It should be noted that Terrell Dodson, the linebacker at Texas A&M, didn't take issue with it, went to social media to say that. I'm going to read to you what uh, Booger McFarlane, the former LSU Tiger and NFL player. Uh, when I grew up, this was normal football. However, times have changed, and just as rules of the game have evolved, so has how you treat players. Rod Marinelli, Rod Marinelli great D-line coach in the NFL now, is one of the toughest, most demanding coaches on earth. He does it without touching players. Be better, Jimbo. You're paid to be. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think he's he's got a point. I mean, and you mentioned that this happened to you and it was in practice. Do you st- distinguish at all between that and doing it in a stadium in front of 80,000 people and on TV where the cameras are going to capture it forever? I mean, I think whether the guy, whether the player had a problem with it or not, there's just not acceptance these days for anything that's demeaning of a player. Now, I'm not in any way equating these two things because the Maryland situation was much, 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 much worse. But the investigation there in terms of the toxic culture is, I guess, wrapping up. The Washington Post reported it. It sounds like they they came away with a lot of the same findings that ESPN story did. And again, there's nothing in there of all the things that have been reported. There's nothing that you would say is like nobody, nobody hit a player. Nobody. There's nothing that would constitute like physical abuse. It's just a lot of really demeaning, um, emotionally uh, manipulative behavior. 
that I'm sure a lot of football players or ex-football players, or ex-coaches would read and go, that's football. Um, but he's going to get fired over it. Yeah, I don't know what's gonna what's how that's gonna play out. I do. He's DJ I mean, yeah, gonna no, release I, the findings, and DJ Durkin will be fired. Yeah, I I think to me it was hard to believe that no matter what comes out of these findings, that once that once the parents player the the player's parents went on the Good Morning America and said he sat in our kitchen and he told promised us he would take care of our son, and now our son is dead or something along you know along those lines. Once it got to that point, I don't see how DJ Durkin came, he was coming back. You know, I, I just don't. Well, and to then, be clear, they have not, uh, you know, they did all, they, that was a separate investigation into the handling of Jordan McNair. And while their medical staff clearly was clearly negligent on that, no, nobody hasn't said that DJ Durkin had, a, had a, a role in that or responsibility in that. If he gets fired, it's going to be for all this other things involving the strength coach. Yeah, I mean, look, and there's at this point, again, I, I, I think there's going to be a lot of fallout from this situation in Maryland. I, I, I'd be very surprised if by by the start of next year that the pre- school president, the school AD, are still in position when all this stuff plays out too. I just think it's there's a lot of dominoes that are going to start falling there. Yeah, there was actually a key detail in that Washington Post story Sunday that one of the parents of you know, one of the concerned parents of one of these players actually sent a letter to the president as far back as December 2016, warning him about this. So this does not look good for the president. Back to the podcast in a second. But first, Bruce, how'd you do on your picks this week? I did okay, Stu. I think I was around 500 for the week. Not good, but not terrible either. Well, are you feeling confident enough to maybe try to make some money off your college football expertise? Because if you are, you should go to BetDSI.com, which has been paying winners for 20 years. It's a top-rated on betting review sites. Use your sports knowledge to make some extra cash. Don't use mine or Bruce's sports knowledge. Use your own sports knowledge to make some extra cash. Go online uh, or their easy-to-use mobile site. They have the fastest payouts in the industry. They offer betting options for everything. Bet on football and all other major sports, politics, reality, TV, Esports, virtually anything. I heard you're actually going to be able to soon order uh, bet on whether Bruce orders turkey burgers or not. <laughs> Try live betting at BetDSI, where you can bet on every play, every drive, and every score until the final whistle blows. Use promo code Audible18 and first-time deposits get a hundred percent bonus match on your money up to five hundred dollars. So once again, go to BetDSI.com. And use promo code AUDIBLE18 to get this limited time 100% bonus up to $500. It's only a game until you bet it at BetDSI. We've got a lot of great mailbag questions. Should we get to them? Yes. As always, you can send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Andrew Brooks from Cape Cod asks us, What has a better chance of happening? Kentucky winning the SEC East? or LSU winning the SEC West? That is a great question. I mean, right now, LSU is about to get into the gauntlet. I know they have two top 10 wins. They're about to get into the gauntlet part of their schedule. They got to go to Florida, and then they have three brutal opponents in a row. One doesn't look as brutal, actually, as it did two weeks ago, and that's Mississippi State. But in there, they have certainly Georgia and then Alabama. I'm going to say Kentucky, just because there's just not as many hurdles left for them. And because I just I just don't see Alabama losing. I really I really don't. Not not to say there won't be some tough games. The LSU game won't be tough, or the Auburn game won't be tough. But I I just don't see Alabama losing. Whereas Georgia, and I did say I was very high on them. It's not Kentucky. First, we have to say how good do we think Kentucky and LSU are. I think they're both. I think LSU is probably. I mean, LSU is clearly more talented overall. Probably LSU's, have more upside. LSU. I just had Joe Burrow. Just like I watched that game Saturday night late Saturday night, they got a lot better, I think, offensively, even though what's crazy is they, they're really banged up on the offensive line. They've had five different O-lines. They've had to start probably nine different guys. But Joe Burrow, it looks like the confidence in him has grown. And they, But here's the road. they got to play at number two, 22 Florida. Then they have number two Georgia the next week. Then they have Mississippi State. Then they have number one Alabama. 
at Arkansas. Arkansas is terrible. At Rice, they're really bad. And then they go at A&M. A&M gave Clemson all they could handle in week two. So, you know, that's I think that's five really, really tough games left against and two of them are against the two best teams in the country right now. How good do you think Kentucky is? I think they're solid, but not great on defense. I think Benny Snell is a guy who, if we're going to stick a running back in the Heisman race, I think Benny Snell might be my guy right now. He ran all over Florida on the road. I think that was good. He's he's just been one big week after another. I mean, South Carolina is a pretty good team. They beat them by two touchdowns. They whooped Mississippi State. I think, no, let's see. You know, I mean— to me, for him, it's a one game. It's it's you know they could lose at at Missouri certainly, but and they could certainly lose at A and M this weekend. Those are not easy places to play, especially at A and M. But then it's Georgia. You know if they can somehow get through this month unscathed, and then they they host Georgia in early November, nobody would have had that game circled. You know you can flip it the other way. At the end of the year, they play at Louisville. Louisville looks like looks horrible right now, but. Uh, you know, we'll, we probably will find out a lot about them, just how for real they are when Georgia comes to town. We've got a lot of Scott Frost, Nebraska angst in this mailbag, uh, among our mailbag questions. Scott Zuelke, S-U-E-L-K-E. Stu and Bruce, Nebraska's 0-4. Scott Frost calls his team the most undisciplined in the country. He talks about breaking bad habits, like running into a receiver on a kick return or committing a holding penalty when Nebraska intercepts the ball. He wants guys to care. Isn't all of this 100% on the coaches? I know we are only four games in, but these comments are what coaches make when they have no answers and when they have lost a team. It's one thing to blame the previous regime on a lack of talent, but I believe even Mike Riley would not be 0-4 if he were still coaching this year. Man, they turn on him in a hurry, huh? Sounds like it. You know, be patient. Uh, I, it, wasn't gonna, it didn't fall apart overnight. It wasn't going to get fixed right away. I agree, yeah. but I think he's also at this point testing patience quite a bit because, like, I think you can blame the defensive problems on. I mean, they were just clearly covered bare on that side of the ball. They were terrible on defense last year, but he's supposed to be this great offensive coach, and we're not seeing really anything to that effect so far. Yeah, look, I think it's a different system. I think there's there's a lot of clearly a lot of growing pains. I'm gonna give I'm gonna give coaches a pass on their first year, especially when they're taking over places that are in big transition. And I think that's what's happened. So along those lines, Anthony asks us, who are we more, more surprised is Owen for Nebraska or UCLA? You warned us about UCLA pretty much all off season. I'm a little more surprised about Nebraska just yeah. because I thought they had a little better personnel. You know, they had, they have three pretty good receivers. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm surprised. I'm surprised UCLA didn't didn't beat Cincinnati, but that's about the only game I I thought that's that's a game they should win. Fresno State won double digits last year. When I looked at 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 certainly at uh, at Nebraska, now they didn't get that Akron game. They might have lost to Akron, but that game didn't happen. So you start looking at their schedule. I'm like, eh, Troy's pretty good. I could see them struggling with some of these teams, but just I thought Nebraska had more personnel. I thought they were a six and six kind of team, maybe seven and five. Now you'll be lucky to go two and ten, I feel like. Do you know that in two weeks I am attending my it's the first time in fifteen years that I'm gonna be taking a Saturday off during the season. And of course I'm gonna be using it to go to a football game. Uh, I'm attending my twentieth reunion at Northwestern. It's Northwestern against Nebraska. Northwestern blew a seventeen nothing lead the other day to lose to Michigan. They are one and three. They play at Michigan State this week. Nebraska plays at uh, Wisconsin. I did not imagine during the before, you know, when we planned this months ago, when I bought my tickets, that I would be spending my Saturday at a game between what will almost certainly be 0 and 5 against 1 and 4. I feel like you have to write a story about that then. About this the misery is, of attending a game like that. The, it could be the worst Power Five matchup of the season. Didn't Rutgers and Kansas already play? Good point, but right, but uh, Kansas has a bunch of wins. They have they have two wins, my friend. That's a bunch. Because <laughs> how many of those other teams have one? Does UCLA by chance play Oregon State? Uh, if they do, it's on the road. I don't think they do. I don't think they do. I don't think Northwestern is necessarily going to go. Like I think they'll probably end up around five hundred. But I mean, Nebraska. Oof, I don't know what that final record is going to look like. Skyler Nielsen, hey Stu and Bruce. 
As a Gator fan, I was thrilled when Florida hired Dan Mullen, despite the perception that he was the third choice after Chip Kelly and Scott Frost. Kelly and Frost are now a combined 0-8, while Mullen is 4-1 with back-to-back conference road wins. I know it's early, but given how each coach is performing at their new schools, wouldn't you say UF made the right hire in the end? It's early. I mean, that that's going off the same premise we just did about Scott Frost and Chip Kelly. I mean, I bet we wouldn't have gotten this question after they lost to Kentucky. No, probably not. I mean, it's early. I, I think there's a lot of football left, you know, on all sides. I mean, that was a good win for for Dan Mullen to go back there. That's definitely a good win. You know, I don't turn think, out that all three made great hires. It could be. I mean, you know, all three all three were successful head coaches before, so it's not a, a stretch. But it's it's very early. And remember, the guy he followed won two SEC East titles there. So it's not like there weren't any players at Florida. Well, there. I think he's already inspiring more confidence, though, than people felt when McElwain was there. Speaking of, of that game, that Florida game, what on earth has happened to Joe Moorhead and that Mississippi State offense? Held the six I, points the other night, held the seven points at Kentucky. I thought these guys were going to th- score, you know, 40 points a game and put up 500 yards every week. Yeah, it's been it's been a dud. I thought they would be the the third best team in the SEC, and Nick Fitzgerald has looked just just looked like he has a little lost. And here's a telling stat: we are we aren't even or this they aren't weren't even through September. He's already been sacked eleven times. He was only sacked seven times all last year. And he's completing under 50% of his passes. Now, he's never been the most accurate passer to begin with, but he is he has been really lacking. And after the first two weeks of the season, where I think he ran for over 250 yards, or first two games he played in because he missed the first week, he has had almost no production in the run game. And I don't know. I think there's probably a lot of Mississippi State fans going, hey, we know we got players. What is going on here? And they better get some answers real quick because – you know, they got off. I mean, look at this schedule. Auburn, number eight, at LSU, number five, and then they play AM. They're going to have Alabama coming in later. They play Louisiana Tech, who's not a gimme. They're pretty good. That's a. Thankfully, they got Arkansas and at Ole Miss late in the year, or else there's no locks that they, they would even go bowling now. Yeah, it's something's not right there. But I would also say that by the season's end, it may, it may prove that Kentucky. And Florida ended up having, you know, two pretty good defenses. Kentucky, for one, is, you know, has been consistently good on defense every single week so far. Florida, obviously, has gotten a lot better since some guys came back from suspension and injury that they didn't have against Kentucky. We're going to wrap with a couple related questions. John Malanga asks, in light of the Kelly Bryant and Jalen McCluskey transfers, do you think the four-game redshirt rule should be limited to freshmen only. You know what? I don't. Here's something that this came up. I was watching College Game Day, and they had a you know a spirited discussion about it. And David Pollock had had brought up, you know, I don't know if he brought up unintended consequences, but referenced Kelly Bryant. But then he also mentioned Tristan Jebbia, the Nebraska quarterback. Well, Tristan Jebbia is a younger player, and the spirit of the rule, I think is more on that side of it. I think after a while, people are going to start, you know, shoehorning into in this, into how it works for them. I mean, if you say only for freshmen, I don't know. I, I, I think that it's a slippery slope if you want to play it that way. And I just don't think when he, when he brought out that reference, I was like, wait a minute, this is now we're going, now we're going overboard with it. I think, I mean, if anything, it makes more sense for somebody who has a chance to graduate you know, to be grad transfer and play right away next year. I, I'm afraid if you did that with freshmen, if you emphasize the freshman part of it, you may have guys who go to, who show up there with unrealistic expectations, aren't, you know, starting or, or playing a lot four games into their freshman year, transfer, and end up having to sit out the whole next year too. Right. I mean, I, I just think that it's, it's complicated, but if you're going to do that, if you're going to be a little uh, more open to helping them in this regard. I think it's going to come with some, some, uh, some things that maybe you don't, that aren't optimal if you're a head coach, but you know what? There's a lot of stuff that's that way. I think this is just one more thing that adds on to it. And finally, James Cunningham from Raleigh, North Carolina asks us, Bruce and Stewart, I've been seeing a lot of people speculating on where Kelly Bryant end up 
Some say NC State. This happened so suddenly and abruptly, I don't know that we really have any inkling yet where he may end up, I guess, NC State. I know I've seen Aub- people people speculate possibly Auburn. Arkansas because I mean, of Chad Morris. Yeah, you're looking at places where there might be a senior quarterback where he yeah. could step in. And so, I don't know. I, I, I uh, You think there's any shot he returns to Clemson? Um, you know, it was definitely crazy during the game when Holly Rowe asked Dabo that at, at halftime, I think. And, yeah. you know, people were – I was wondering, like, is somebody calling him? Like, can they get him – He's still enrolled in classes. I don't know if he can. Was, they actually get him to the stadium. Yeah, can they get him a police escort and get him to the stadium in time? No, because then he's just gonna. It, it, first of all, it sounds like there's some some hurt feelings on his part, and also, you know, then then you know, I mean, maybe it'd be different if Trevor Lawrence was was out for the season, but he's supposed to be back next week, and so now he's just right back to being the backup again, which is why he left in the first place. If I were, the only thing I'd say about him or any grad transfer quarterback, and I think some guys make this mistake sometimes, they're so fixated on obviously going somewhere where they might be able to start right away that they end up going to a bad team. And I just don't, you know, he's giving up playing for a possible national championship. Do you really want to spend your fifth year in college somewhere like Arkansas, for instance? And the connection there is obvious. Chad Morris recruited him to, I don't believe Chad Morris was still there to coach him, right? But he no, recruited him to no. Clemson. Yeah. Go play for him, and but then you might get your brains beat in and go three and nine. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure he's going to have plenty of options. So we'll we'll see. Uh, you ready to do our shout outs? I am. And first, a reminder to send these questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Go ahead. You want me to go first? I do. Okay. Uh, my shout out is one that's posthumous. It is to the late Julius Whittier. He was the first. African-American football letterman at the University of Texas. Uh, He passed away this past week at 68. Uh, He'd been battling Alzheimer's. I'll be honest, too. I mean, as much as we cover college football and talk about the history of the sport, I did not know anything about him. And then I read a story and was really moved. Uh, So he made his debut one season after Texas had filled the last all-white national championship team in the history of college football. And he started out as a guard and then moved to tight end as a senior. And that year he caught every touchdown pass Texas threw. And here's something that to me was kind of telling. You want to talk about legacy. So this is a quote from when he was a senior. He was interviewed. I wanted to see if the myth about UT's racism was true. If it was, I wanted to see what I could do to change it. Julius Whittier ended up getting an undergrad degree in philosophy and then a law degree from Texas and went on to be a criminal prosecutor in Dallas. Sounds like a great man, a pretty awe-inspiring legacy. I know for my column this week on The Athletic, I'm actually talking to some prominent former Texas Longhorns just about the impact that this man has made on their lives. And uh, so shout out to him. I think this is the second time now you've done this to me where I'm sitting here like ready to salute some mid-major coach who's won a couple games and you go real deep and uh, and heartwarming on me and I'm like, well... Well, geez. then maybe you should go first, too. Maybe you should go first next time. Wow, is that going to be any better? <laughs> then you're just going to totally upstage me after. Maybe I just need to start putting a little more... Maybe uh, put some more thought into it. Maybe, maybe put some more thought. I, I, you know, Obviously, I knew about that story, but my shout-out is to Luke Fickle. The former longtime Ohio State assistant and interim coach took over at Cincinnati last year, four and eight in his first year. The Bearcats, five and zero, oh, just crushed UConn. Although a lot of people seem to be doing that right now, becoming a force to be reckoned with in the American. They've got a top ten defense nationally. Redshirt freshman Desmond Ritter has really emerged as a, frankly, a surprise at quarterback. He beat out some veterans to get that job. They play Tulane this week. Tulane coming off a big upset of Memphis. I know the American is still kind of UCF, USF in terms of how people are, are viewing it. But I don't know. Can the Bearcats sneak up and make a run in that conference? I don't know. We'll have to see. Best I got. Best I got All right. this week. All right. All right. We will see you guys next week. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. We'd like to thank our producer, Nick Fink, and we'd like to thank 
Kevin and the Octaves for our intro song, Dangerous. You can download their music on iTunes or Spotify. If you haven't subscribed to The Athletic yet, what are you waiting for? Read both myself and Bruce and all our other great writers there. Go to theathletic.com slash theaudible and get 25% off. You can also follow our coverage at The Athletic CFB. You can follow me at SL Mandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. We'll see you next time. Get over